And today I'm going to talk some more about growing in Jesus, and we're going to try to get into the Song of Solomon on this. And I wanted to start by just sharing some verses, though, that talk about that closeness of the Lord. We talk in the New Testament about we are, that the Lord, that Paul said that we are to be the bride of Christ. And there are three really good verses that are on that that I want to share with you because they emphasize that our relationship with the Lord is not casual. We are not a number in the book. I know that y'all have got to be bothered by the same thing I'm bothered when you get a call on your phone and you look down, you don't recognize the number, and you answer the call and they go, your automobile something, service or package or something or warranty has come to our attention that needs to be renewed and we've sent you such and such and I'm going why am I getting these how can I get off these lists furthermore it's a computer talking to me or a recording you know you don't have a person you have some recording and it makes you just feel like something impersonal you know like they're calling my phone to try to get me to deal with something impersonal God is the other side of that God is the most personal. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And Paul says that when he was ministering to people and sharing with them, he betrothed them to Christ, that we are the bride of Christ. And that we are being prepared as a special bride for the Lord. And then in Ephesians 5.27, he says that Jesus might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That the will of the Father is that we as the church be made holy and blameless, to be presented unto Jesus as holy and blameless. And it's such a special thing to think that the Lord has such intent for us to purify us, to make us holy, but then to present us to himself. Not to say, I've got an army of 10,000 people who passed the course and reached holiness level number 10. That's not what he's trying to do. It's not so we can have a certificate that says, I did 52 years of Bible study and I memorized this many verses and I know this much and I'm at certificate level 17. That he wants to make us holy and blameless to present unto himself that we have a bridegroom that wants us to be presented to him. Uh, that's just such a great thing to feel. It's not a religion it's not a God way out there. We have a bridegroom and we are the bride. And then in Revelation 19.7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's to be a marriage of the Lamb and we are the bride. And the scripture says, let us rejoice and be glad because it's time for the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is good stuff. 
When you think that we are being prepared for the Lord himself, there's to be a marriage feast and there's going to be great rejoicing. I'm always thrilled in the scripture that how many things God says that there be rejoicing, that God means for there to be joy. It would be a startling thing to the world if Christians could just go around and have joy in their heart or peace, but hopefully joy and peace. And I want to let you know that the enemy is constantly at work hacking away at joy and peace as much as he can. He will try to show you faults in other people, things that come up in your schedule that are unforeseen, and how are we ever going to get around these things. Uh, when you drive on the road, Helen and I were driving back. We had driven a long way to Charlottesville and coming back, and I guess we were halfway back, and we were in a nice lane, and there wasn't anything particularly bad, and whack, a rock hits the windshield. And it's one of those rocks that hits the windshield and doesn't, and doesn't just bounce off and do no damage, but it cracked the windshield. And it's one of those cracks that you look at it and go, we're going to have to replace that windshield. And we are going to have to replace it. We haven't replaced it yet. We are going to have. And as we would drive on a few more hours, that crack would just grow and grow and grow across that windshield. But do you know something? We are connected to the Most High. And if we have to replace ten windshields, it doesn't mean anything not connected with whom we're connected. And one of the things the Lord means for us to be as lights of the world is that His true joy is in us so that when windshields break and when we twist ankles and when we get out and think we're going somewhere and we arrive two hours early or two hours late or when we come the wrong day, I've done that, or when something totally unforeseen happens. Today, we had a lot, this week, we had a lot of stuff going on at CDC and I just made the mistake of checking my email one more time at 11 o'clock at night. There was another email. And the email said, is it possible for you to review this before 7.30 tomorrow morning? And I was going, Gary, I looked at that and went, I'm headed to bed. It's not possible for me to review that. But you know, the Lord knows those things are coming. He gives you strength to do those things. And he gives us joy and peace. If Christians could be fountains of joy and peace, the rest of the world would look around at them and go, what is in you that's not in me? Because you're facing these circumstances, but your hand seems to be connected to a more powerful hand than mine because joy and peace walks out of me and joy and peace stays in you. And the Lord means for that to be true. And that's why these verses say, let us rejoice. Always coming together with the Lord is joy. And that's why the angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Every time we think of Jesus and Jesus enters a situation, it is good tidings of great joy. We need to take that in and not let these other thoughts that come in dominate our mind, because they will definitely come in. So as we talked last week, we were talking about, about the mystery of the fellowship. We talked a lot about how God is the source of growth. How we said in Philippians 1, 6, He who began a good work finishes the good work. In Hebrews 12, 2, He who started our faith finishes and perfects our faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, that the sanctification of our spirit, soul, and body is done by God. He is faithful and He will do it, it says in verse 24. And we talked about how Jesus had a different concept of work. That Jesus' concept of work is that our lives 
be abiding in him in all respect. And that then he empowered everything else that went on, including growth. There are a couple of verses then that talk about this. And one of the reasons it's a great mystery is it's a combination of me and Jesus. I'm not left out. Jesus is not left out. It's a combination of me and Jesus. And my role is to make sure that I'm abiding in him and following him. And his role is to guide and strengthen and provide everything else that's needed. And a Christian that's living that kind of way will walk and do many, many works. And will do those works not out of duty, but out of a joy of being with the Lord. So I had a hard time with these verses for a long time when the Lord would talk about dwell in me and I will dwell in you. Because I kept thinking of it in terms of boxes. If I'm a little box, I can dwell in a big box, but how can the big box dwell in the little box? You know, I couldn't see how that would work. And one of the things that the Lord helped me with it, I want to share with you, is I believe it's a whole lot like an egg and flour. That we're broken into the Lord and mixed together with him. And like an egg and flour, that creates a new creation. There's something that's new that comes out of it. The egg is still in there. The flour is still in there. And you could say the flour's in the egg and the egg is in the flour and you'd be right because it's a mixture. And it's a mixture that makes a new creation. And that's the best way for me to picture how I can be in Jesus and Jesus can be in me. Nonetheless, often when I'm driving or doing anything else, I'll put the Lord right next to me in the front seat. Or sometimes I'll put the Lord in my office in the neighboring chair. And I'll just talk to him like there to say, Lord, look at this. Because that helps me sometimes talk with the Lord. But, but Paul said several things that talk about this. And I want to go over a few of these verses. And I want to highlight these verses because it talks about how I'm living and Christ is living at the same time. I'm doing these works and Christ is doing these works at the same time. And the scripture says that this is a mystery. It's a mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. It's a mystery, but it's not a mystery that's totally unfathomable. It's something we can understand some, but we can't understand it all together. And that's fine. It's just fine that it's that way. So one of the verses is Galatians 2.20, and Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, when I first read that verse, I went, okay, I can buy that. I'm not living anymore, and Jesus is living in me. So, okay, if that's the way it's going to be, I can go with that. The next part of the verse, he says, and the life which I now live. And I called to the Lord, and I said, well, you've got to have it one way or the other. If I'm dead and Christ is living through me, we can go that way, but you can't come right back and say, now the life that I now live, because that's me. But that's exactly what he meant to say. Christ is living in us, and we're alive in us. And it's a wonderful union of our spirits. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is one spirit with him. And so Christ is living in me, and I am living in me. And in a way that we don't understand, we're one spirit together. So he would say, it's no longer I who live. And then five words later, it is I who live. And so it's a mystery but it's a glorious mystery. So he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So when we have the faith in the Lord, when we're trusting in the Lord, He is living, He is working, we are living, and we are working combined with Him. And then another verse, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul goes, you know, more than anybody else, I labored and put forth. But then at the end he says, but it really wasn't me, it was the grace of God that was in me that labored. And so you look at that and you go, okay, well, I mean, I kind of understand that. We're working, we're working with the strength that the Lord puts in us, so it's both of us working. Helen's got a really good mixer at home, a KitchenAid mixer, and if, I, if Helen went away and came back and I had the KitchenAid mixer with the bowl and everything sitting out on the counter and I had put a potted plant in the bowl and I just took that bowl and filled it with dirt and put a nice potted plant and came back and said, Honey, I, this really looks good to me. I really like this. Helen would sit me down and go, It's okay to put a potted plant. We have things for potted plants. The mixer is not the thing for the potted plant. Do you see how we'd straighten that out? It's not the thing for the potted plant. And I said, well, it was just sitting there. It wasn't doing anything. And she said, well, if you plug it into the wall and turn it on, it really does something. It doesn't just sit there. And nobody should use a KitchenAid mixer as some sort of decoration in their house because a KitchenAid mixer is meant to plug in and to be active. In a way, we are KitchenAid mixers. And when we plug into the Lord, that's when things begin to happen. Well, if you were to say, well, what makes the KitchenAid mixer work? Is it the mixer or is it the power that it receives from the outlet? Well, you would have to say at the end of that, it's both of those things. It's the mixer and the power, both. Jesus is that power. We are the mixer. And so when we're plugged into him, things happen that should happen. And when we're not plugged into him, people put potted plants in us. Have you got me? and you stagnate. But when you are plugged into him, things happen that could never happen with the KitchenAid mixer until it gets plugged in. So in 1 Peter 4.11, he has another verse just like this, and these are very encouraging. And he says, Whoever speaks is to do so as someone who is speaking the utterances of God. I love that verse. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength of which God supplies. So whatever we're doing day by day, whatever we're saying, we are to speak as we're speaking the utterances of God. Whatever we're doing, we are to be doing as serving by the strength which God supplies. So it's just exactly like that power. God is supplying the strength. And so at the end of the day, we can't go, well, it was all these great things that I did. We say, thank you, Lord. For giving me the strength to walk in what I needed to walk in to glorify your name. Because he does supply the strength. And we've talked about the enemy so much. And, and when I was talking with John earlier, it is so important that we have scriptures that we know because the enemy will come in and say just the very opposite. You have to do this thing, but there's no strength to do it. You have to go through this place, but you haven't got the strength to do it. I was talking to Helen last night, and I had to do something. I said, honey, I think I'm just going to have to get up and go do it. 
And she said, yes, <laughs> that's what you're going to have to do. But most of you know that, oh, I don't know how you wake up in the morning, but somehow my bed is made so that it is three times more comfortable when I have to get up in the morning than it is at any time during the night. Is your bed like that? It's just super more comfortable when you have to get up. And I have to just take my body and throw those covers off and get out. You just have to do it. You can't sit there and think about it for 20 minutes. You just have to do it. Many things in life you just have got to go do, and there will be a voice there saying, you can't do this. It's much better to stay where you are. Inactivity is the choice. That's what you should do. Just stay. Somebody else will cover that. And you know the Lord is calling you to do it. Well, the Bible says that God supplies the strength. And, and when you're calling inside of yourself going, where am I going to get those, that strength? 1 Peter 4.11 says that we serve by the strength which God supplies, not by the strength that we supply. Tremendous verse. And then in, in John 14.10 and 11, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus said, the Father abiding in me does the works. Now we could see Jesus, and in Jesus the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. We could see Jesus, and he said, the Father in me is doing these works. So as we're called to be just like Jesus, Jesus and the Father together did the works, and Jesus within us, together with us, is to do the works. But it's not a way we normally think about Jesus, for him to say, no, it's the Father in me that is doing the works. So we understand a piece of this, and we can understand a piece of a KitchenAid mixer. We haven't got it all down, but we can benefit from the fullness of what God does, because God in us is doing the works. And the excellent verse in Psalms on this is Psalms 127, 1 and 2, that says, Except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Except the Lord keeps the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. So the verse says, except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now it doesn't say they labor in vain who build it if the Lord is building it. It says they labor in vain who build it if the Lord's not involved in it. And this is a hard thing to take in life. Unless the Lord is in it, it is not going to be substantial and lasting. It may be a poof like a house built on the sand, but it's not going to be a house built on the rock unless the Lord is in it. And the scripture says, except the Lord be building the house, whoever is doing it is laboring in vain. Now that's the very hard thing. That's like the verse in John 15 where Jesus said, for without me you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The singular requirement to bearing much fruit was if you abide in me. And that's the same thing being said in Psalm 127. If the Lord's not building it, it's not going to work. But if the Lord is building it, it's going to bear much fruit. And he says the same thing of the watchman. He said of the watchman, except the Lord keep the city... The watchman's not going to make it. He's not going to protect the city. And the, and the second verse, in verse 2, it says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, 
to eat the bread of sorrow, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Now, for a long time in my life, I felt like that if you got up early in the morning and you were praying and studying the Word, and you stayed up late at night and you were praying and studying the Word, that that wasn't vain at all, that that was sacrifice, and that the Lord honored that sacrifice and would give you special things. This is an incredible verse because it says it is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late. For so the Lord gives you sleep. The Lord is actually bigger and better and richer in this than we give him credit for. He knows what we need to operate and he doesn't need to stretch us out. It is, he says it's vain for you. And I didn't consider it vain. I considered it actually a spiritual, really good thing I was doing. So, very important that the Lord is involved in everything. In Mark 4, 26 and 27, in one of the parables of the kingdom, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed, and at night he, get, he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he does not know. And this is very interesting because that is literally the entire parable. Jesus doesn't explain it any other way, and it's not mentioned in any one of the other Gospels. That's the whole parable. And the point was to say right at the end that God sows things in us. It grows and makes good things happen, transforms us into his image. But how? We don't know how. And we've commented before that Jesus is the how. He is the one that makes these things possible. But we're listening to this verse saying that God's purpose in the kingdom was to make things happen in us, that things would grow in us, that we would be transformed, and he would be the author and the maker of what was going on. And so in Galatians 5, and 23 is the last verse I want to mention. And this is a verse we all know, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The first part of that verse says this is the fruit of the Spirit. So when the Spirit of God is in us, it creates those things. It creates those things. So I'm, I'm saying those, the, that whole set of verses to say there's a mystery around how our uniting with Christ can energize us, can transform us, can mold us into the image of God, can give us the power to work every day, can give us all the things that we need, that there's a mystery there, but it's laid out multiple times that God does it, and that he's going to do it, and we're going to grow in ways that we don't understand how. And most of us have experienced that. I know one of the biggest things in my life after I became saved was I genuinely knew that I loved people. I genuinely knew that there was a love in me that cared for people and that that was something that I hadn't really had before. And God put that in me in a way that I don't understand. Ken, I don't understand how he did it. But he did put it in me. And it changed everything in my life. So God is able to do that. So I'm going to flip over now to the Song of Solomon because I want to go through as God is working this growth in us there are three sections of Scripture, and I'm going to cover the first one in Song of Solomon today, but there are three sections of Scripture that talk to us about the progress that God makes so we can see things that He works on, and we can go, 
yes, I can see that in my life. I can see I was there and that God moved me from here to here to here. And the first one's in Song of Solomon. And the second one is in 1 John 2. And the third one is in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. So in Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is an interesting book in the Bible. Um, my first cut at the Song of Solomon was it didn't belong in the Bible. <laughs> when I first read it, I went, this is a love story. What the heck is this doing here? But it's actually a very special book. And in Song of Solomon, it's about two people. It's about the beloved. It's about a bride and a bridegroom is the way that I think of it. But, but in the, in the, in the uh, words of Song of Solomon, it talks about a beloved, and he talks about her as his love. Okay, but if I talk about the bride and the bridegroom, sometimes it's easier for me to go, easier for me to discuss it. And the first verse that I want to talk about is just the second verse in the first chapter. And in the second verse, he says, May he kiss me, or she says, excuse me, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so the bride, which is us, looked at the bridegroom, which is Jesus, and said, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Now, when I first met the Lord, and I think when everybody here first met the Lord, one of the things you're overcome with is the blessing of the Lord. We walk into the Lord who died on the cross for our sins, took the pain and punishment for guilt all on himself, released me into the freedom of his spirit, blessed me with his Holy Spirit coming into my life, it's like there were just waves and waves and waves of blessing just by meeting Jesus. And all those things are good. And all those things should happen. And they're, they're great things to happen. But one tendency from that is to say, I really like to go to Jesus because he pours the blessing on me. He just pours the blessing on me. I need a blessing. I'm not feeling good. I would like a blessing. I need to go to the Lord. His kisses, I love the kisses of his mouth, and his love is better than wine. I like to go to the Lord. And it's not bad to go to the Lord and experience the Lord, and his, he certainly has got love that is better than wine, and all of that is true. But that was the vision and the complete vision of the bride. That's what Jesus does. Jesus gives me things. Well, if we overheard a conversation where two people were talking, and I'll just make this two women of unknown names, I'll call them Jane and Louise. Okay, so Jane and Louise are talking, and Jane is saying, you know, I, I really like to date Bill because Bill takes me expensive places and buys me expensive gifts. So I really like dating Bill. Well, if we overheard that conversation, we would think, well, that relationship is pretty shallow. She's just pretty much interested in what she can get out of Bill. She's not that interested in Bill. She's interested in what she can get. Well, people that get stuck at this first step are very similar to that. It's not that I really love Jesus that much. I appreciate Jesus, but I really like what he gives me. I really like what he gives me. And so that vision is true that Jesus blesses. I don't want anybody to walk away misunderstanding this. But our vision and the real blessing is not the things that Jesus has done for us, but Jesus himself. And so she says, 
She says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And that's a place, and many Christians stop there. If you stop there, you go shopping for places where you feel like Jesus will bless you. So you go to church one, church two, church three, and you go, here's a blessing service, let's just go here and see if I can catch the wave of the blessing that's flowing in on that service. And you chase blessing. And after a while, the Lord will stir in your heart that what you're doing is chasing blessing. And it's a, it can be a hard thing because those of you who have known the blessing of the Lord, it's a wonderful feeling and it's a wonderful thing. But if you start going, he'll, he'll let you know after a while, you're really just going to this place because you want what I can, what the blessing. And after Jesus fed the 5,000, he said that the people were coming because they were fed with the food. They received a blessing. That's why they've come back. And he was pointing it out to the disciples that this is a thing that's going to happen. Once there's a blessing, let's do that. You know, when Peter and John went to pray and they met that lame man, and all of a sudden, you know, they, he said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that man who was crippled rose up and walked you got to be thinking people nearby were going, come and talk to me, okay? You took this man from withered legs and he rises up and walks. I don't care about your silver and gold. I want what you have. Come and talk to me. And so there's a tremendous tendency to, to, to come close to that. And it's not a bad thing, but it's not something that is the limit of our vision of the Lord. And it's something that we can experience but not put our eyes on and say that's the ultimate thing in God. And one of the things that the Lord is doing on the face of the earth is he's putting people down with deep roots. He's taking some people and saying, look, I want you to come and look in my eyes, hold my hand, talk to me. We're going to walk together. We're going to talk about lots of things. We're going to talk about things that are deep inside of you. We're going to talk about your past. We're going to talk about how you can be a blessing to other people. We're going to be together and be intimately acquainted, and I'm going to know you. And it isn't a pop-in, pop-out, I got my blessing in this hour, <clears throat> and now I'm going to run around and do my daily activities. He said, it's going to be a closeness, a closeness. And there aren't going to be tons of people that do that. But have you ever noticed how many things God changed with just a few people? Have you ever noticed how he would take one person and you go through history, we don't talk about thousands and thousands of people making a difference. We talk about people who were close to the Lord that were close to the Lord. And then they influenced many, many things. And so the Lord is looking for those people that will come. And that's really what this whole thing in Song of Solomon is talking about. He says, I'm looking for you to be close. And so I think this is very true, and, and, and people will do that. There will be a large group of people that are just going for the blessing. But he's calling out to us, and it's really whether people will respond. And I, I think it's a tremendous call today that the Lord can have very people strongly rooted in him so that when things come up that befuddle everybody else, they are a source a fountain of Jesus. He said that within you, living waters would come out. And living waters is Jesus. And he said, I'm going to make you so that living waters come out of you. In places that you come that are parched, you're going to be a source of living waters. Jesus was really talking about this. 
Now, in the Song of Solomon, in the rest of the first chapter or so, it always is amazing me that the bridegroom describes the bride as beautiful. Now, if we're the bride, and pretty much most of what we're interested in is what the Lord can give us, I don't see us as that pretty. But he does. He does. You know, when you have a child, um, I, I had to learn a lot of things having children, but one of the things that I had to learn the hard way was if you put them on your shoulder to burp them after they've eaten, you better have a diaper on your shoulder because you burp them, you could get extra stuff coming back up. Well, I didn't do that the first three or four times, but the fifth time I did. And you don't look at that little child after they spit up on you and go, what sort of incompetent baby are you that you would spit up on the person who's feeding you? You don't say that. You just wipe it up and you clean it up and you look at that baby and you think that baby is the most precious thing. Well, Jesus looks at us through eyes that don't focus on our imperfections. He looks at us through loving eyes. And if you read the rest of that chapter in Song of Solomon, he describes us as beautiful. And he says that he talks about his love and how she's beautiful. Now, very interesting, the bride doesn't describe the bridegroom as beautiful. She doesn't describe him as beautiful at all. She just says, I like him because of what he gives me. So we get over to the uh, second chapter in the 16th verse, and there's actually a pretty big jump. And at this place, the bride says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flocks among the lilies. And you'll see this. This is in several songs. My beloved is mine, and I am his. It's a verse that some people use. So this has gotten her off from being totally centered on me to now she's saying, my beloved is mine, that's still centered on me, and I am his. And the next growth that comes is that you recognize the Lord, you belong to the Lord. You are not just receiving from the Lord, but you belong to him. And she's reached this place, and she said, my beloved is mine, but also I'm his. And she's moving more from being self-centered to being more Christ-centered. She's made a big move here, and that is a big move. And many Christians get that. And so this, this kind of place, this is the way I describe this place. I'm actually going to give money to the church. <laughs> you know, oh, I can see, I know the church works, but I'm going to give money. I mean, I had to earn this money. And so here, here's $10. Oh, wait, wait, this is a double Sunday. Here's $15. And they begin to give some. Do you see? And I am his. And kind of at the end of that is people go, listen, I'm really into this. I give 10%. That's what they say in Malachi to do, and that's what I do, man. I give 10%. That's still in this category. It's the thought that we're giving something. And I'm giving something to the Lord. And a lot of times people in this position will discuss with you how much they gave. And they'll tell you, well, I gave to the Lord. I contributed to that. Well, they asked for money for the special Christmas boxes, and, well, I gave money to that. Yeah, I put that in. As a matter of fact, I gave $40, I want you to know. And they're willing to give, but they consider giving kind of an effort and a special thing that they're doing. So there's a lot of times that we have people that just get kind of stuck in that place. 
And then a special thing happens that starts in chapter 3, verse 3. And so, excuse me, that starts in, oh, one thing I wanted to mention, and this is important, that in chapter 3, she loses her beloved. She loses the bridegroom, and she can't find him. And she wants to find him because he's hers, and she wants to find him. And so in chapter 3, she said, I decided in verse 2 to go out into the city into the streets and the broadways, and to seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me, to whom I said, Did you see him, see him whom my soul loves? I had gone but a little way past them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So she went out and she talked to the watchman. And you're going, well, what in the world would this be in there for, talking to the watchman? But the watchman didn't have a problem with what she was doing, and they let her go on. And this is important a little bit later, because the watchmen treat her differently a little bit later in the book. So when we get to the third chapter then, this is kind of, to me, a very meaty chapter. And this is where the beloved, the bridegroom, comes to see her, but she's already gone to bed. And I'm going to pick up and read, starting in verse 4. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So what happened is that the bridegroom came, but it was inconvenient. She had already washed her feet, put on her, her gown, and gone to bed, and so it was inconvenient to respond, and that's what she said. How can I do this? I'm already in bed. I've gotten all clean and everything. But she did respond. She did end up going to the door to find him, but she couldn't find him. So this is what happens in our life. The Lord will come to us in a place and say, I'm calling you, and it's not the convenient thing for you, and I'm asking you to respond. And so picking up, she said, I opened to my beloved but my beloved had turned away and gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I didn't find him. I called him, but he didn't answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am love sick. So she went out to find her beloved and ran into the watchman. Well, when she ran into the watchman before, they were fine. Yeah, go do your thing. But now the watchmen aren't fine. The watchmen are saying, the watchmen are striking her and wounding her. So what is that? Well, the watchmen are your peers. The watchmen are the people that you live with. Now listen to this. If you have a vision of the Lord, 
where the Lord is mostly the person who gives to you and you give some back to him, then your peers are going to be okay with you because that's the way your peers are. Most Christians have a relationship with the Lord that's governed by them. They deal with the Lord mostly to receive but are willing to give some. But once you cross the place that you're willing to walk with the Lord when it's inconvenient, when it's not the natural thing to do and it's going to cost, it's going to cost you doing something extra, it's going to be meaning you are nice to a person when you don't feel like being nice to a person. You are giving to another individual when you know that person doesn't deserve it. You have bitterness in your heart that you've gotten rid of because the Lord said to do it and it wasn't what your natural inclination was to do. When you do the inconvenient thing, your peers are going to beat you. Hard thing to hear. But they are going to say things to you, Ken, like this. Who do you think you are? Holier than thou? What's so special about you that da-da-da-da-da happens? They're going to come at you that way. And the guardsmen are going to come off the wall and take your shawl away. There will be people against you because you are trying to follow the Lord and pushing through the inconvenient thing. And you'd say, well, why in the world would that be? That is what happens. That is what happens. And people will say of you, you just think you're special. So the great thing about this was it changed the vision of the bride of the bridegroom. And all up through Song of Solomon, all up until the third chapter, she had never described the bridegroom at all, much less describing him as beautiful. But once she pushed through and did the inconvenient thing, she saw Jesus as beautiful. And these are the verses, and I mean head to toe beautiful. It's because she says, what kind of beloved is your beloved? What kind of beloved that you would, just, you would thus adjure us? And she says of him, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. And she takes him from head to foot. And she finishes up on verse 16. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughter of Jerusalem. His mouth is full of sweetness, he is wholly desirable. So once you press through the inconvenient thing, Jesus looks beautiful. He is wholly desirable. And you'd say, well, how did that work? That's just the way it works. That's what Jesus is asking and he really gives back when you push back through that thing. And this is a big turning point in life. So then going on to the next chapter, once we get to chapter, after chapter, excuse me, I was saying chapter 3. All of that was in chapter 5. And then we get to chapter 6, we find that there's another change in the way she describes her beloved. In chapter 6, verse 3, it says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So remember, her first thing was, my beloved is mine and also I am his. Now she's saying, I am my beloved's, and also he is mine. So instead of Jesus taking second place, 
Jesus has moved from second place to first place. Do you see the switch? First, I was important, and yes, he's important, okay. And now he's important, and also I'm important. So Jesus has moved up. She's become less centered on herself and close to the Lord. All from doing the inconvenient thing that the Lord asked. Not, not terribly complicated. It's just pushing through and doing the inconvenient thing the Lord asked. By the end of the Song of Solomon, she changes one more time. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, it says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. There is no longer anything that I possess him. It's just, I am his. I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. So she has moved from the place of being totally centered on me, I like to get what I can get from Jesus, to totally centered on Jesus. I am my beloved's. I belong to him. And it's sitting there right in the middle of the Old Testament, right in Song of Solomon. And this is what happens in a Christian's life. And the Lord is asking us to grow from a place where we are self-centered to a place where we are totally given over to him. And he describes the steps. Now I look at my life and I find some things, Gary, that seem to be further along than others in this. And the Lord will come and he will ask for the thing that is nearest and dearest and closest to your heart. He will ask for that. I'm talking about this in terms of long walks because I think it helps visualize it. But the Lord does not deal tangentially with the surface things in our life. He's not dealing with, I mean, I'm not calling this a terrible surface thing, but when Margie is laying out how we're going to do the fall festival, and she needs to get a phone call back from this person in time and arrange the varsity truck in this time, all those things need to be done. And those are important things for Margie to do to make all that happen. But down deep in her heart are things that drive her life. And Jesus is going to go beyond the activities of our lives and the things that we're doing down into the deep things that are in our heart. All of Scripture is crying out that our heart be for the Lord. And Jesus goes all the way down deep and says, down deep inside, this is where your heart is. And I want to change your heart. And that will be what sets you free. But if we do this thing like a business transaction, what do I do with Jesus in terms of what can I get back from Jesus? Jesus is no more than a vending machine. And many, many Christians do it that way. Well, if I go through these four steps, can I secure this blessing from God? And someone will preach on these are the four steps to have joy in your life. And if you'll do these four steps then you'll have joy in your life. But the Bible says that Jesus is our joy. And this close talking and knowing of the Lord and being able to be with Him is what produces joy. And I can tell you, as someone who's tried the four steps many times, you may have a burst of joy, but you don't have a lasting joy until your joy is in Christ. Now, when she saw the bridegroom, she saw Him as wholly desirable he it, she was everything he was everything just look at this she saw him as the treasure in the middle of the field 
Everything about him was beautiful. And you see that in Christ. And she never said anything about him until she had walked through that stage where she went through difficulties and said, I'm going to stick with it even in the difficulties. And I think many in this room, you know this very thing. You've walked with things with the Lord and go, it's not going the way I want it to go. Um, uh, I think people raising children have tons of these situations in their life. You just go, I didn't want it to turn out this way. I wanted it to be this way. And the Lord is always working, but He's asking for us to walk with Him and be with Him and be the light to these people, to be the light to the world. Now, I want to emphasize this because there's a lot to talking about Jesus, but we, people around us, see us every day. And they actually know what makes you tick. And they know that when something comes in front of somebody, they get upset. And if we are followers of the Lord and things come in front of us, and we really get upset, they're looking at us going, well, you say you're a Christian, I hear you say you're a Christian, but you seem to get upset just like non-Christians, so whatever you've got, it's not that deep. But if they see something come in front of us that would upset somebody else, and it doesn't upset us, they have got to figure out what it is inside that makes us that way. And so, the Lord moves deep. The Bible says deep calls unto deep. The Lord moves deep inside of us. And the call of the Lord today, as it is in every generation, is who is really going to walk with me? Who is really going to have these conversations where I can change their lives? You know, St. Augustine was really confounded because he ran into a woman who changed his life. And... Uh, and this woman was happy. And it bothered Augustine that the woman was happy because she was genuinely happy. And he was not, at the time, really over as what you would call a full-fledged Christian, but this woman was a Christian. And she did not have what you would call financial stability in her life. And when Augustine ran into her, he said, well, look, you're pretty much living day to day. You know, you have this stuff, and tomorrow you're doing this stuff, and you haven't got any long-term assurances. If you had a calamity, what if a calamity happened in your life? What if this happened, and what if this went, and what if it went this way? And what she said to him, in essence, was, Jesus is the one who handles the what-ifs. In essence, that's what she said. And it bothered Augustine terribly because he knew all these things and he didn't have peace and joy. And this woman who didn't know anything like he knew had peace and joy. And it was one of the things that drove him to Christ. Well, you would say that woman had a tremendous influence on someone who had a tremendous influence on the church. Huge. And it was the joy and peace that was genuinely in her that frustrated somebody else who didn't have it. People look at us. If you're dark, if you're a two-watt light bulb, they know it. And one of the big calls on us in this hour is that when we're confronted with everything in the world, and I mean everything from politics to uh, social unrest, from anything that we can approach it the way Jesus would approach it, rather than standing up and say, I want to make sure everybody hears my opinion. 
Because the world stands up and says, I want everybody to hear my opinion. Jesus says, I came to save you and rescue you. And from all these things, I am your rescue. So when we're called to grow, we're going to see this in our life. And I just want to leave with a final emphasis on we think we have a vision of Jesus, and our vision of Jesus is quite small. Compared to other people, we might have a really good vision of Jesus. But compared to the way Jesus is, our vision is quite small. And the Lord said in John 5.44, How can you believe when you receive praise from men, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? Now, I know this is a strange thing to say. Most Christians receive glory from other Christians, but have trouble seeking the glory which is from God. They have trouble coming to the Lord and saying, Not my will, but your will be done in everything. Not just religious things, but in everything. It's a very hard thing to do with natural strength. But the Lord provides the strength. But he is asking us to do that. And he's saying you need to seek the glory that comes from God. That you need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these other things are provided. But a lot of people like to seek occasionally his kingdom and his righteousness. But he said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided. Well, all these things is all these things. Not only your natural needs, but your emotional needs and your spiritual needs. The future of your kids, who your kids are going to marry, how everything is going to work out. The Bible says if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, those things will be taken care of. But what we tend to want to do is to seek his kingdom and righteousness some and then hear here's proposals for what he wants to do in our life so we can judge which ones we want to act on. And God's trying to say, you seek for my kingdom and righteousness first, and whatever I want you to do, you be willing to do. And when you enter that, suddenly Jesus becomes beautiful, and our vision of Jesus goes sky high. I love walking with John Upchurch. John's got a vision of the Lord that is just really clear. The Lord is here. And when you catch hold of the fact that the Lord really is right here, and he's altogether wonderful and loving and takes hold of you, it's more than your mind can handle, but it's also more than your heart can handle. And it's more than your emotions can handle. Uh, there was a story one time about a, a boy who, who went into his, cracked his father's door because he wanted to hear how he prayed. And his father was bent down on his knees and over, bent over his bed praying. And the boy opened the door and heard his father. And his father was saying, God, God, God. And that was his prayer. He was just calling out the name God because he was communing with the father. It wasn't a flurry of words. It was a deep calling unto deep. So I feel that when we're talking about growing in the Lord, we're going to talk about two more things next time, and we'll finish this up. But we've kind of been admonished and encouraged at the same time. 
these are the places Satan will try to stop us. He will try to make it where God is partial. He'll try to make it where inconvenient things come and stop our walk. And we can see in the Scripture that God's told us, push through these things, and I'll show you a glory in me where you'll see me as wholly desirable, altogether wonderful, a treasure in the middle of the field, worthy of your whole life and all your praise. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we're grateful to you that you show us in the Scripture so that we can be knowledgeable and know and push back against the things that will, will hold us back. Push back against the things that would make a difference and keep us from you, Lord. We know that you are the Almighty God. Please reveal yourself to us in our hearts and draw us closer to you. Grow us into your likeness that you be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen.